Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Uh, let me start by saying, you know, very little is known about Habakkuk other than what's written in uh, the book of Habakkuk. Uh, what we do know a lot about, though, is the time in which he wrote, because it was just before uh, Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read just the last three verses of Habakkuk to kind of zero in on today's message. But then we're going to jump out um, to kind of get a bigger vision of the whole book of Habakkuk. Because while Habakkuk is only three chapters, there's, a, there's an awful lot here. So it shouldn't take us more than three or four hours to get through all of this. So this is... This is our text today, Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Uh, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Does uh, Christianity stand a chance in the modern world? Christians are more persecuted today than at any time in history. Uh, In China, they're often arrested for not registering. In the Middle East, they're very often just killed outright. And it's not just persecution. It's Here in the Western world, we have this sort of growing philosophy of secularism and humanism. Most Secular philosophies doubt the existence of God. But even those who make room for a higher being are mostly uh, in agreement that the God of the Bible isn't it. In Europe, the uh, cathedrals that took decades and untold human sacrifice to build stand empty. And uh, in, in the UK, research shows that the number one growing religion is paganism. Things are getting worse in North America, too. In in Canada, newly passed legislation makes it a a hate crime to teach a biblical view of sexuality. In the U.S., according to the Pew Research Center, the number of people who say they don't identify with a specific religion has about doubled since 2007, from 12% to to 30%. Pollsters call it the rise of of the nuns, which sounds a little um, like a problem for us Protestants. Nuns rising up in their habits with pitchforks and torches, and running those pesky Protestants to ground, but, but that's not it. It's nuns spelled N-O-N-E-S. People, when asked what religion they identify with, say none. To those hardcore unbelievers, everything is just the result of blind chance. There is no one responsible, no one in charge. Everything is random. There is no meaning. So... What hope is there for Christianity in the modern world? Here at BRCC, we believe the Bible is God's word, but that doesn't actually tidy up all the loose ends. In fact, it introduces almost as many difficulties as it addresses. For the believer, our challenge is affirming that God is all good and all powerful. And yet we face disappointment and disease and heartache and violence and evil 
And so we Christians have to explain, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why are things all messed up? Those are Habakkuk's questions in the first chapter of this short book. Habakkuk's a unique book because, unlike the other prophets of the Old Testament, Habakkuk doesn't carry uh, the, the message of God to the people of Israel. He carries the complaints of Israel to God. And it's a great book because it kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes view of the prophet's communications with God. And it shows us how a believer can carry doubt and anguish to God. And so Habakkuk starts by complaining to God about God. He's bewailing the injustice he sees all around him, the violence, the, the wickedness, the conflict, the, the evil. He says, how long, God, are you going to let this go on? And then second, he says, why do you reward one very terrible group but, but punish one less terrible group? Why are you taking so long, God, and why do you reward the totally wicked while penalizing the only slightly wicked? Have you asked these questions? And let's be honest, we see people around us who mock and hate God, and yet they prosper. And we see others who are trying to lead good and moral lives, but but they're in great distress. So here's Habakkuk's first complaint in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. I think I just lost my mic. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So that's Habakkuk's first complaint to God. He says, God, you seem to be doing nothing in the midst of such evil. Are you, are you AWOL? Is Nietzsche right? Have you, have you succumbed? And God responds to Habakkuk like this in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to, squeeze, to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And so Habakkuk complains to God about the wickedness he sees in Israel, and God answers in, in a way that Habakkuk doesn't really find much comfort in. God says, no, Habakkuk, I'm not asleep. I'm not AWOL, and Nietzsche is wrong. I haven't succumbed. In fact, I'm stirring up the great and evil superpower of Babylon to invade your land, conquer your people, and carry you into captivity and slavery. That's probably not the answer Habakkuk was hoping to hear. And so Habakkuk makes a second complaint, starting in verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
And Habakkuk says, so gosh, God, maybe you're not aware of this, but these Babylonians, they're the wickedest of the wicked. What in the world are you thinking? Don't you know? Why would you use the really evil to kill and maim and enslave those of us who are only a little evil? And in chapter 2, God answers and God pronounces five woes against the Babylonians. Essentially, God says, don't worry about the Babylonians, Habakkuk. I know how bad they are. And eventually, they'll get their just reward. But judgment starts with the house of the Lord. Judgment begins with the household of God. That's a theme all over the Old Testament. In Exodus and Joshua and Judges and the prophets. In Ezekiel 44.6, I'm sorry, I just lost my place here. In Ezekiel 44.6, we read, And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations. Jeremiah writes about the coming captivity and repeats to Israel what Habakkuk hears from the Lord. Jeremiah 5.11, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. And in the New Testament, Peter in 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If you think about it, that's a little scary. I think it's a natural inclination of the human heart to sort ourselves into parties and groups. It goes back thousands of years since, since families and clans fought to protect themselves against outsiders who wanted to steal, steal and kill. It's as, it's as old as the human heart. Our group over here, we deserve blessings. We deserve nice things. But that group over there, the outsiders... They don't act like us. They don't sound like us. They don't look like us. They're wicked. They're nasty and evil. Or maybe we think they're not quite as human as we are. And that justifies all the judgment they have coming. They're going to receive damnation, and they deserve to. But our group, we deserve blessing. I think that's pretty typical of how people look at the world. Certainly how Israel was tempted to look at the world. You say, well, that's people thousands of years ago. We've evolved. <laughs> no, we haven't. It's an ancient way of thinking, but it's a very modern way of thinking. You've probably heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a, he was a Russian and a, an atheist. He was a captain in the Red Army in World War II. He, he was a devout Marxist until he found himself imprisoned in the Soviet gulag uh, for... Uh, falsely accused of criticizing Joseph Stalin. And, and it would have been easy for Solzhenitsyn to have turned bitter and angry and hateful. It would have been easy for him to blame the guards or the government or, or Stalin personally for the, for the misery and suffering and unbearable cold that was every minute of his day in the gulags. Instead, Solzhenitsyn converted to Christianity. And in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, he wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? He's saying it's not bad people over there and good people over here. He's saying the dividing line cuts not through society, 
but through every individual human heart. He's saying, there's, not enough, there's enough evil in me to condemn the, the, the whole world, and there's enough evil in you. The fundamental problem is not them versus us. The fundamental problem is always us, and we deserve judgment. Jesus talks about this. He especially talks about it when he talks about the Pharisees and, and the religious authorities. He says, the problem isn't that some people are wrong. The problem is that some people think they're right, but actually we're all wrong. The, the difference is the Christian is someone who knows he's messed up, and he's depending on Jesus and the Holy Spirit to, to clean up the mess. We all deserve judgment, and judged by our own merits, we'll all be found wanting. Here in Habakkuk chapter 2, God says, judgment starts with the house of God. Then later the Babylonians will get their judgment, but first, you're up. We're right there at the head of the line. So what hope do we have? And as the wicked, evil Babylonians bear down on us with no desire other than to kill and enslave us, where do we get the strength to stand? And here's the three things Habakkuk says we do to find the ability to deal with the suffering and the heartache and the disease and the death in our lives. Here's how we can praise God even in the midst of pain. First, we remember. Second, we rely. And third, we relish. First, we remember. Here in Chapter 3, Habakkuk recites what God has done in the past. And, and because he knows God has been faithful to his people in the past, he, he can count on God's faithfulness in the future. Habakkuk knows trouble is coming. And so he recites God's past actions in the lives of his people and, and says, God, do it again now. What you did then, what you've promised to do in the future, do it now. Reading Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 15 God came from Tamlon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushon and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, as the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You tramped the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk goes through the history of Israel. He recalls the faithfulness of God here in verse 3. He, he talks about Mount Paran and, and Taman, both waypoints on the way 
through the wilderness to the promised land. He, he remembers Mount Teron in Deuteronomy 33.2 where, where God's splendor was reflected as he accompanied his people. And Mount Ter- uh, Paran and Tamon are very near uh, Mount Sinai where, where God delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he says, I know how you spoke. I remember. Then he talks in verse 7 about the tents of Cushon and the Midian, both, both instances of tyranny against Israel in which God intervened to save his people. He talks in verse 11 about the famous victory against the Amorites in Joshua 10 when, when the sun stood still in the sky and God, God fought for his people. And he mentions a bunch of places I'm too incompetent to cite, but if you spend enough time going through Habakkuk and comparing it to stories in the Old Testament, you'll find the answers. He's going back over the history of Israel because he's remembering God's faithfulness, and he's saying, God, just as you delivered your people from captivity in Egypt, we know you will deliver us from Babylon. And just as you defeated the enemies of your people in the past, you'll do it again in the future. I can trust you to do in the future what you have done in the past because you have always done what you said you would do. So first there's remember. Remember the faithfulness of God in the life of his people and and in your life. Second, there's rely on God to be your strength. Look at verse 19. It says, God the Lord is my strength. In the middle of struggle and persecution and pain, Habakkuk says, God is my strength. And that's interesting because back in chapter 1, verse 11, Habakkuk says Babylon, this this evil superpower, he says their strength is their God. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Habakkuk says of the Babylonians, they are guilty and their strength is their God. Chapter 1, verse 11 says, their might, their armor, their military, their money, their resources, those things were their God. That's where they found security and certainty. That's what they worshipped. That's where they received their, their provision, their protection, their safety, their peace. Their strength was their God. But here in chapter 3, verse 19, Habakkuk says the complete opposite. He says, I have no blossom, no fruit, no olive, no food, no cattle. He says, I have no might, no wealth, no armor, but God the Lord is my strength. What about you? Is God your strength or is strength your God? The stuff you have, your economic security, your wealth, your home, your business, your job, your wife, your husband, your children, your church? Is that your comfort? Is that where your security lies? If so, then that's your God. And your comfort and security are fragile because your God will eventually fail you. It will be taken from you either by death or by calamity before death. Babylonia Babylonia fell because their strength was their God and their strength gave out. But the message of Habakkuk is that our God never gives out. You can experience eternal security, eternal peace, a never-ending spring of eternal joy. And it will never give out or be taken away from you. Verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 19, my God is my strength. Though my house lose 75% of its value, though the markets crash and my 401k be zeroed out, though my college application be rejected, though my job interview be a failure, though the bank take it all, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
God, the Lord is my strength. That's tough, isn't it? That's Habakkuk. He couldn't thank God for all the great things happening to him or Israel because there weren't any. But he could thank God for being who God is. Do we praise God like that? Do we, do we praise God because of what we have? Or do we praise God because of who he is? Habakkuk tells us that to praise like that, we have to remember. We have to remember his kindness and his mercy, and we have to rely on his strength. It's crazy to think we can control everything around us. It may be crazy to think we can control anything at all. But God is mighty. He is sovereign. He is good. And so rely on his strength. And finally, finally there's relishing the promises of God. Remember, rely, and relish. And yes, I'm aware relish isn't a great word, but I was trying to keep them all our words. But odd word or not, this is the most powerful idea of all. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Habakkuk says this. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Now that's the ESV translation. The old King James says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed one. And frankly, I prefer that translation because I think it gets at the point a little quicker. But whichever translation is best, they both make the same point. Remember, Messiah just means anointed one. So this is either saying God is going out for the salvation of his anointed people, his little M messiahs, or it's saying the Messiah, capital M, Christ is going out to save his people. But either way, the point is that God has an anointed one, a Messiah with a capital M, a Christ, and that Christ will come and bring victory for God's anointed ones, God's people. And Habakkuk tells us he'll do it by crushing the head of the house of the wicked. And, and by putting it that way, Habakkuk is pointing to a great collection of other scriptures that speak of uh, the Messiah's mission. The, the first one is Genesis 3.15, where God promises that Eve's offspring offspring with a capital O, that Eve's offspring will, will come one day and crush the head of the serpent, the head of the house of the wicked. Here's what it says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This promise is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus, the, the, the anointed one. 700 years after Habakkuk, the real Messiah, the Christ comes to defeat sin and death and he crushes the head of the house of the wicked. He defeats Satan. He's evoking other scriptures, too. There's a lot of them. Anytime we find a, a little M Messiah in the Bible, we're seeing a kind of a vague and shadowy pencil sketch of the full-color reality of Christ who saves his people. As an example, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, where King David the shepherd is this little M Messiah, and he goes out into the battle for his people, and, and he takes on the head of the house of the wicked Goliath. David is the champion for his people, and no one wants to face Goliath, but the, the young shepherd David says, I'll go, send me. And he goes in the name of the Lord, and he kills Goliath, the head of the house of the wicked. David sa saves his people from the Philistines, and, and his victory becomes Israel's victory. And the Bible's telling us there's a better David coming. There's a better Abraham, a better Moses, a better Joshua, a better Joseph. It tells us that Goliath and the Philistines, along with the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Moabites and all the others who came against God's people, they're all just rough pencil sketches of the real head of the house of the wicked. They're just a warm shadow 
of the real enemy, Satan. And Habakkuk is reminding us there, there is a Messiah, and he will come. He won't fail. He, he definitely, absolutely will come. A true and eternal anointed one. As Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Elijah and Boaz and Esther and even Rehab were champions, so a better champion is coming. And he's going to crush the head of the house of the wicked once and for all time and bring victory and righteousness and hope for his people. That's Habakkuk's hope. So yes, the house of God is first in line for judgment, but the Messiah comes as the house of God. It's Jesus, 700 years after Habakkuk. He calls himself the temple in John 2.18. The true Israel, the place of refuge, the temple, the place of sacrifice. But it all comes down to Jesus, the house of God, who comes to take judgment. And on Good Friday on the cross, he takes all the pain and suffering and death that judgment demands of you and I. Then he rises up to be the rock of our refuge and safety. And so now, as the people of God, what is our message? What is our hope? That the one who is the head of the, of the world has been judged. He has risen. And now he is our refuge, our safety, where, where we proclaim with Habakkuk 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, the righteous will live by faith. And so what's our mission to the world? It's an invitation. The gospel is not about good people trying to get better. It's about stupid and foolish and sinful and selfish people like you and me offered refuge in Christ. It's that Christ will come. It's that the knowledge of the truth of the Lord Jesus will flood the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's what Habakkuk tells us in chapter 2, verse 14. And so we invite the stupid and sinful and foolish world to join us stupid and sinful and foolish Christians and take refuge in Christ. So how do we apply this? If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you have questions. You're not convinced. Well, first, please know that this is exactly where you should be, and you are really, really welcomed here. And I urge you with all my heart, if you want to know whether the Christian faith is for you, then, then please come and meet the person, Jesus Christ. I know you have questions, and you should. But did you notice that just because Habakkuk is a prophet and a Christian and wrote a book of the Bible that all his questions aren't answered? He doesn't get promoted to prophet and suddenly all his doubts are resolved. That's not the way faith works, and it's not the way relationships work either. If you're single and looking for a, a relationship, do you take your clipboard and your 23 questions on a date with you? And may I suggest that if you do that, then that's probably why you're still single. <laughs> you have to come to the person. You have to meet them where they're at, engage in their interests, their story, their life. And, and then you have to open your life to them. And sure, there's questions along the way, but you have to meet them on their terms. And even if someday you take vows and, and you're married, even then, you won't know everything about your spouse. It's one of the things that makes marriage during the first few years interesting. Because it's after the marriage that complaints and concerns mount. That's when the worries take on added significance. The questions become a little more pointed. Why do you think that way? Why do you do those things? Were you raised in a barn? Or maybe that's just the questions I was asked. 
And your questions don't get any easier after you're a Christian. I, I promise you, you still have questions. They may not be the same ones you have today, but I promise you, you, you will know a love and a joy and a hope you can't begin to imagine outside of Christ. Secondly, what does the Christian look, life look like, according to Habakkuk? It looks like taking your complaint to God and hearing his complaint against you. Then, taking your complaint to God and hearing his complaint against you. <laughs> and that's chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, we're supposed to respond by praising God, by singing praises to God. Our circumstances don't matter. Our, our feelings, our fears, our sense of justice, they don't matter. So how do we praise God when we're going through hard times? We remember who God is. We rely on his strength and not our own. And we relish the promise of salvation he's given us in Jesus Christ. Can you do that, Christian brothers and sisters? Is that something you can do? Can you take your complaints to God and hear his complaints against you? Can you remember and rely and relish and then praise him just for who he is? And then the last application, and I wasn't going to mention this. I'm going to throw it in. It's sort of a new subject. Um, kind of ridiculous of me to introduce it at this late date. But if you're going through hard times, can I suggest that part of relishing God's salvation promises is, is getting a vision for a future of such indescribable bliss that it will make this life seem like a pale pencil sketch compared to reality. One of the best ways to get that vision is to read through the end of the Gospels and, and see the end of the story. What, what, what does resurrection life look like for Jesus? Sometimes the, the picture we get of heaven is, is like the spiritual anesthesia that, that undermines the, the joy we're in for. But the Gospels offer us tangible insights. In Matthew, after Jesus is risen, we find him and his friends talking late into the night about the things that really matter. In Mark and Luke, we hear about long country walks. John talks about tear-filled reunions and barbecues on the beach, fishing with pals. In fact, the, the Gospels frequently talk about Jesus eating with his disciples in his after his resurrection. It's meal after meal after meal. It's worth looking at the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life after resurrection because it gives us a very different picture than billowy clouds and choruses and, and harps. Instead, the Bible speaks in very tangible and physical ways about what resurrection life looks like. It talks about sitting under your own fig tree and drinking from your own vineyard, Micah 4.4. And the gospel shows us Jesus on, on long walks with friends in the country, jo joining tear-filled reunions, staying up late into the night talking about God and, and his kingdom. It's fishing with pals, it's barbecues on the beach, it's meal after meal after meal. That's what resurrection life looks like according to Jesus. He's defeated sin and hell and the grave. He's come through death. He's been raised in glory. And now he's far beyond the reach of the curse. And if you're connected to him, if you're connected to Jesus by faith, he, he carries you through with him. But the harsh reality is you get there by the same path he took. It's the grave first, then resurrection. It's Good Friday, then Easter Sunday. It's the valley of the shadow then feasting joy. That's the path. 
but you can be 100% sure that Christ has already trod that path. And, and then if you ask him, he'll see you through. And in the process, he'll take your pain and your suffering, and he will be your indescribable joy. He's your God, and if you ask him, he will be your strength. We started today by asking whether the church stands a chance in the modern world. Habakkuk had doubts. Some people have doubts now. So maybe we should ask, what hope does the world offer? The hope of the world is this. You are here completely by random chance. You are an accident of biology. There is no meaning. There is no point. You're born. You live. You die. And eventually, you will be forgotten forever. Fair enough. You're dead. You don't notice, and it won't matter. But is that hope? What's the Christian hope? Long country walks with friends, talking long into the night, fishing with pals, barbecues on the beach, wonderful meals with the finest wine, and Jesus. The world holds out very little hope for the church, but the church holds out great hope for the world. In fact, we have the only hope. I'm not an expert on other religions, and I don't know everything about all the other philosophies, but I know this. None of them gives us any hope for these bodies or this world. Absolutely none of them. Only Jesus. I don't know what you're going through at the moment. Your, your trees aren't blossoming. Your, your vines aren't producing fruit. Your, your fields yield no food. You have Jesus. The Dutch writer Corrie Ten Boom was a Christian in the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation. She and, her, she and her family were arrested for smuggling more than 800 Jews out of Europe. Uh, and many of her family members died in the death camps. And afterwards, Corrie Ten Boom wrote of the experience, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Rejoice in him because he is what you need. He is all you need. We're going to come to the table this morning. I mentioned earlier that um, uh, God pronounced five woes on the Babylonians in Habakkuk 2. And in the fourth of those woes, he, we read about the cup of shame that that God holds out for the Babylonians, and he holds out for all of us who put our own desires ahead of his. It's a familiar picture in the Old Testament, this, this, this picture of a cup. It's as though hell fills this cup, and we're all in line to drink from it. We've, put, we've all put other things before God. We've, we've all worshipped false idols. And we need to drain this cup of shame and judgment and hell. And we're lined up, each of us, and we're plodding along, stumbling forward. And like Habakkuk learns, there's no use blaming the other guy, pointing to somebody else and saying, but God, he's worse than me. That's not going to help. So you're trudging along, waiting your turn, when, when you see off in the distance, there's Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and and he's praying to his father, and he's sweating blood. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Though, Father, he says, not my will, but yours. Jesus says, if it's me or them, if I must drink the cup so they don't have to, 
If I must take the wrath so they are spared, if I must suffer infinite hell so they don't have to suffer hell infinitely, if that's the choice, let it be me. Let me take their blame. Let me take your wrath. Let me go to the cross so they can be saved. The gospel is not good people trying to do better. It's about flawed and failed people and selfish people taking refuge in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of BRCC to come to this table. You do have to have chosen to take refuge from your foolishness and your sin in Christ Jesus. If you've done that, then you are welcome here. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord on the night he was betrayed. Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the glass, the cup, saying, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can prepare the wafer in your packet. We're going to pray, and then, and then we'll take it together. Abba Father, we, we deserve your pronouncement on woes on our heads. And sometimes it feels like we are suffering more than we can bear. But we know this is not punishment, because punishment has already been meted out through the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior, the head of the household of the Lord. So, Father, even in the midst of trouble, we remember and we rejoice in you. Take and eat. And you can prepare the juice, and we'll pray and drink it together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are that you stepped down into the valley of the shadow, that you stood in our place, you took the judgment, you faced our enemies, even death and Satan, and you defeated them. Would you please give us hope and strength and joy that in the midst of the valley we might know your presence and we might turn to you, Jesus, that you would be our strength. Help us, O Christ, to recognize that you are our champion who won the battle defeated the head of the house of the wicked, and provide refuge for us. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we seek today at this table to be united with Christ by your presence. This week, whether, than, whether we're confronted by beauty and love, or whether we're dealing like Habakkuk with barren trees and empty stalls, will you be with us? Will you encourage us? Provide for us, fill us, and give us gratitude as, as we relish God's saving grace on us and on our families. In Christ, amen. And now will you stand with me and uh, receive the benediction? This is from Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything and in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Go now, be blessed, and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.